just a couple things I want to reiterate. Uh, Jeff already addressed these, but I just want to offer reminders of them. Uh, the first is if you have any photos that have been taken of Veritas uh, or its people over the last, coming up on 10 years now, uh, we would appreciate you uh, putting them on a flash drive or perhaps a disk uh, and uh, letting Lindsay Briggs have a copy of them so she can include them in our 10-year celebration, which will be coming up very soon. We'll tell you more about that in the upcoming weeks. Uh, as well, um, I want to welcome our visitors. Uh, we are so glad to have you here today with us at Veritas. We are a perfect church. <laughs> From the laughter, <laughs> you know that's not true. <laughs> you don't believe that's true. The members here don't believe that's true. And I'm only kidding when I say that. Uh, there are no perfect churches. And the reason there aren't any perfect churches is because there aren't any perfect Christians. Uh, rather, we here and all churches uh, are a group of believers who are being perfected. We are being sanctified, and we are being made holy. Now, in one sense, in what Romans 5, 1, 18 through 19 calls our justification, we've already been sanctified. We've already been declared holy. That's what justification is. It's a, a legal term by which we are declared to be pardoned from all of our sins and whereby we are viewed by God as being righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that as Christ bore our sins on the cross. We now bear his righteousness before the eyes of God. In justification, we have positional sanctification. That means that we are already and are forever sanctified. We see that in Hebrews 10, 10 through 14. As well... 1 Corinthians 5.1, Philippians 3.21, and 1 John 3.2 tell us that when Christ returns, we'll be fully sanctified. We'll be glorified. Even our bodies, these earthly tents, which I am learning more and more as I age, that break down, they'll be transformed and made like Christ's. We don't know exactly what that means, but we know it's better than what we have. First John says, we shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him. We'll be perfected both spiritually and physically, conformed to the image of the Lord, and forever freed from sin's corruption. But between justification and glorification, the Holy Spirit is working in each Christian's life right now 
on our here and now today sanctification, referred to as our progressive sanctification. John 17, 17 and 2 Timothy 3, 16 both teach that Scripture, God's Word, is His primary means of sanctifying us. But God does have other means as well. One of those other means that He uses in our sanctification is our providential trials. That's why James says in verse 2, to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. He understands that our trials are gifts, gifts given to us by God for our sanctification, for our spiritual maturity. But he also knows that it's often very difficult to see light at the end of the tunnel when we're faced with an oncoming freight train. So James is going to help us with that today. He's going to show us how we can view our trials from another perspective. A perspective allowing us to see God's light beyond and behind the unyielding train of our trials. I want to draw your attention to four points in today's passage. The first is the problem. The second, the prescription. The third, the promise. And the fourth, the principle. The first three, the problem, the prescription, and the promise are found in verse 5. The principle is carried out verses 6 through 8. But before I preach, let me read our text once again in its entirety, and then I'll pray. James 1, 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Still didn't go off. Thank you. Oh, I don't want it. <laughs> I'm trying to get rid of it. <laughs> Would you bow your heads with me, please? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be amongst your children today, amongst the fellowship of believers, those you have redeemed with the pure and holy blood of your Son, Jesus. Father, as I dare to speak your word, would you take my meager speech, Father, and use it for your glory? Father, would you carry it forth on the wings of your spirit and do with it great and wonderful things? Would you increase today your people, Lord God, and would you draw those you would have come to you? Father God, I ask you to bless this preaching of your word. Give me clarity of speech. 
And again, Lord God, use it according to your will, your purpose, and by your sovereign power. In the name of Christ, our holy Lord, amen. Let me begin with the first portion of verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom. James says that the problem keeping us from God's joy in our trials is our lack of wisdom. You see, in order to count trials as joy, we need to be able to see our suffering through eyes of faith. And that, James tells us, requires wisdom. Not the so-called wisdom of the world, but rather the pure wisdom that comes from above. He speaks of that in chapter 3, verse 16. Do you recall, this is a fascinating story, do you recall the story of Elisha and his servant in 2 Kings? You see, after learning that Elisha had been prophetically warning Israel's king about his Syrian war plans, the king of Syria sent a massive military force to capture Elisha. His servant rose early in the morning, the scriptures say, and as he looked out, what he saw was a surrounding army of chariots and horses. Elisha's servant was terrified. And he reported back to Elijah what he saw as a hopeless dilemma, asking, what shall we do? But as 2 Kings 6, 16 through 17 tells us, Elisha saw things quite differently. And he said to his servant, Do not be afraid of those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Can't you just hear the servant's amazed response as he does a quick head count? One, two, one, two. What are you talking about, Elisha? There's just you and me and all of them. There's no way out of this. What shall we do? Now, given the circumstance, they are clearly outnumbered. That's not an unreasonable response. And isn't that often our response too? When trials come and the odds look clearly stacked against us, don't we, like Elisha's servant, often feel helpless? Hopeless? And let's not miss this. James didn't say in verse 2, if trials come. He said, when? He said, when trials come. You all know that's true. 
If you are by chance young enough that you haven't experienced trials or aren't in trials right now, heed James' words. They will come. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13 reiterates this. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I know for some of you, when is today? When is right now? For others, you've just recently entered the fiery furnaces of affliction. For others, you've been suffering adversity in one form or another for years. and You can't remember the last time you weren't under trials. You can't remember the last time You didn't know adversity. So looking again at the trial facing Elijah and his servant, in response to his servant's fear, Elisha prayed. O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold... The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I am delighted in picturing that revelation scene. It overwhelmed me, to be honest with you. It still does to a degree. As I imagine the rescue, the relief, and the peace that came the servant's way and his response to it when he saw what Elisha saw. When he saw God at work. And it's important that we see what each man saw. Because although Elisha and his servant were standing right next to each other, each man was viewing a very different reality. In their shared circumstance, one man was blinded by it, where the other saw it through eyes of faith. The servant's problem is often our problem. When faced with a trial after we've done all that we know how to do and the trial, the affliction, it's still there. Maybe it's even worsened. We can go blind to anything beyond it. Like the servant, the only thing we are able to see is the surrounding enemy. James continues our scripture with these words. 
If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. To cure our lack of wisdom problem, James, like a spiritual optometrist, prescribes prayer. We're to ask God to do for us what he did for Elisha's servant. We're to ask that he open our eyes and to give us the wisdom to see our trials from a different heavenly perspective. The world says seeing is believing. But the Bible says we have a choice in what we're looking at. And if we fix our eyes only on the problem, that's all we'll see. And that's all we'll believe in. But when we view our trials through the eyes of faith, we'll see a God who's always bigger than even our biggest problem. Our fears, anxieties, and feelings of hopelessness melt away in the bright light of God's glory. Peter's walking on water demonstrates this truth well. We find it in Matthew 14, 25 through 33. And it reads like this. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, that's Jesus, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let me offer you a Cliff's Notes synopsis of that story. Peter's eyes are on Jesus, and his feet are on the water. Peter's eyes are on the storm and off of Jesus, and he's neck deep in water. Peter's eyes go back to Jesus. He's lifted up and given new insight, a clearer view of Christ's divinity. That's what happens to us when our spiritual eyes are open too. We suddenly recognize that we're not alone. 
we can see that like his name, Emmanuel, God truly is with us. And as Romans 8.31 says, he's for us. And he has a massive spiritual arsenal ready at our disposal. We're able to recognize that as his child, through the gifts of his indwelling spirit and the revelation of his word, we have been granted faith not only to repentance, but to perseverance as well. You know the verse that says so, Romans eight twenty-eight. You hear it all the time. For those who love God, you can say it together in your hearts with me, all things work together for good for them who are called. So once we're able to view our trials from God's perspective, even the faintest ember of faith will ignite into bright flames of assurance. We can rejoice with Paul in Romans 8 and Joseph in Genesis 50, knowing that even in our darkest hour, God intends it for good. Paul says something similar in Philippians 1, 12 through 13. I want you to know, brothers, that as what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul's not practicing positive thinking, and Paul isn't employing wishful thinking. Paul's not saying, gee, I sure hope this works out. He's voicing his sure confidence that good, in this case, the good advance of the gospel of Christ, already has come and will continue to come out of his trials. Hebrews 11.1 describes that sort of faith, that sort of mature faith, as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's the brand of wisdom that James instructs us to pray for. The God-given wisdom that strengthens and purifies our faith, enabling us to see God's purpose and presence in our trials. In perfecting our faith, God makes for himself a people who lack nothing as they grow and enjoy the spiritual maturity that every believer is called and aspires to. The final part of verse 5 says this, and I'll read the verse in its entirety. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. James says that when we're feeling lost, overwhelmed, and undone by our trials, if we'll go before God asking Him for the gift of wisdom 
the faith of assurance and seeing his purpose and presence in our trials, it will be given him. In saying that, James is making a very, very big promise. It's even bigger when you realize it's God he's committed to keep it. Now, I don't know about you, but I know about me. And what I know about me is that I am very, very slow to make promises in God's name. I am very afraid to make promises in God's name. But James does. And he does by listing three attributes of God's giving as his reason for doing so. As the trust he has in God in making that promise for God. The first promise attribute is that God is a generous giver. Now, let me just cut to the chase here because neither you nor I am going to live long enough to list every gift God has ever given. So I'm going to presume ridiculously perhaps to categorize all that God has ever given under two headings. First, let's keep it simple. God has given us everything. Acts 17.25 says, He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The truth is, and this is truth for believer and unbeliever alike, there is absolutely nothing, nothing past, nothing present, nothing future, nothing tangible, nothing intangible, nothing relational, emotional, provisional, or spiritual that did not come from the merciful hand of God. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. James 1.17, a, a verse we'll get to, uh, I think, in the third, third week of August, says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Let's shorten that up. Every gift is from above. The second gift is unlike any other gift ever given. It's not only the singularly most generous gift ever given. It's the greatest gift ever given. It's the unparalleled, unmatchable, unfathomable gift of God's one and only Son, Jesus. John 3.16 
arguably the most famous and well-known verse in all of Scripture. But just in case you've never heard it, and for those God would perhaps have hear it again as if for the first time, it reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God the Father gifted us God the Son. God is both the giver of the gift and the gift itself. So, because our God is a giving God, James' instruction to believers, and that's to whom he writes, believers, James' instruction to believers lacking wisdom in the midst of their trials is to ask for it from God, whose generosity is shown not just in His giving us our everything, but also in His giving us His everything in the life and death of His beloved Son. But there's also another sense of God's giving generously that's important for us to know and understand. The Greek word translated here as generously is hoplos. And it can also mean wholeheartedly or single-mindedly. In that sense... It conveys an understanding of there being an ultimate driving purpose behind God's giving. And understanding that, I want to know what His purpose is. Because if I know God's purpose in giving... When I do go before the throne of God and I do ask for something... I can know that I can ask it avoiding the false motivations that James notes in 4.2. I can go before God making my petitions, making my requests, giving up my prayers, knowing they are at least to the best of my knowledge in accord with His purpose. Within the context of these texts, our sanctification by the testing of our faith through trials, I believe that James is pointing to God's purpose in giving, being His wanting His children to become like Christ. Christ-likeness for God's people is God's will. Romans 8:29 says that God has predestined his people to be conformed to the image of his son. And Ephesians 1:4 tells us that we were not only chosen in Christ, 
before the foundation of the world. But we were also chosen to be holy and blameless before Him. It is God's eternal purpose that His people be conformed to the image of His Son, that we become like Jesus. In the fall, and by that I mean the fall through sin, Adam lost much though not all, of the divine image in which he had been created. But God has restored it in Christ. Conformity to the image of God means to become like Jesus. Again, Christ's likeness is the eternal predestining purpose of God and is the ultimate purpose of our sanctification through trial. The second point that James makes about God's giving is that he is not a discriminatory giver. If you need a testament to just how incredibly generous God is in his giving, consider this. God's gift of Jesus is given to his enemies. Where John 3.16 tells us that God gave us Jesus. John 3.17 tells us why he gave us Jesus. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. God gifted Jesus into this sin-loving world, a world of people in glad defiance and open, hateful rebellion against God, not to condemn them, but to rescue them. Would God have been justified in condemning us? Absolutely. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's justice. We deserve God's eternal punishment. And yet, in His loving generosity, God sent Jesus that we might never know any of those things. That Jesus might know those things for us. Romans 5 6 through 8 and 10, says that while we were enemies of God, he showed his love for us in sending Christ to die for ungodly sinners. And that it is only through the Son's sacrificial and atoning death that we are reconciled and made alive to God. With that model of God's generosity toward his enemies, we can only marvel at what must be the fullness of generosity he's extending to those who are his children. Matthew 7, 7 through 11 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. 
Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? And did you notice that here too, the answer to a believer's asking, seeking, and knocking is promised to everyone? God gives to all His children without exception. God does not reserve His favor to just a favored few, those on the holiness dream team. Rather, He is generous to all believers that come and ask for His gifts in faith. That's certainly going to be true when what we're asking for is the wisdom needed to see our trials as His purposed means of our sanctification, that in joy we might become more Christ-like. The third point about God's giving that James cites is that God is not a vindictive giver. As his final piece of evidence to the surety he has of God's giving, James adds that God gives without reproach. That's an odd thing to say, isn't it? Why? Why does James think that it's necessary to add that? And why is that important for us to know? We've already been told that God is generously giving. He gives joy, securing wisdom to all who ask. Isn't that enough to lead us, particularly in the face of our trials, into asking for it? Perhaps. But James also knows of a condition by which every believer is at some time or another afflicted. Our guilt before God. Not only the guilt of repetitive sin, but the guilt we imagine in our Christian failures. I can't go before God. I can't ask God for a favor. I can't ask God for wisdom. He knows I haven't been reading the Bible. He knows I've been harsh with my children. He knows I haven't been praying the way I say I should. He knows all about me. And because He knows all about me, I don't dare go before Him. Such offenses such imagined offenses can and often do hinder us from taking our petitions into the throne room of God. The word translated reproach 
means to shame someone with words that mockingly expose their faults or failings. Put simply, it means strong verbal abuse. But James says that God will never do that. James wants us to know that we can trust God to not treat us harshly in response to our prayers, petitions, and requests. God won't ever respond to our pleas with insults for our asking. He won't offendedly scold us for squandering what's already been given us. And he won't humiliate us when we ask him for more. Applied to our context today, God will never respond unkindly to our repeated and frequent and necessary requests for wisdom, no matter how many times we present them to him. That is an incredibly encouraging promise. The same God who with infinite and inexhaustible power created and now holds together the universe stands ready and willing to give abundant wisdom to all who ask based not on their track record but their trust. Matthew 21, 22 says, And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have faith. Which brings us to our fourth point. In verses 6 through 8. And James' address of the principle that when we ask of God... We are to ask of God in faith. Though God doesn't answer prayer based on the petitioner's place on the holiness scale, being given the wisdom we ask of Him is conditioned on whether or not we make such requests believing in Him for the answer. Let me read through those verses, 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Other passages such as Hebrews 11.6 make clear that faith is essential to our approaching God. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. It's kind of a foolish thing, isn't it, to ask something of someone if you weren't sure they existed or doubted their ability to give it? That, that reminds me of a fellow in a red suit at Christmas time. <laughs> I don't want to spoil any kids here, but I mean, it's kind of the same thing. 
we, at a certain point, our understanding of that person changes and we stop asking because we know better. So in our asking of God, in this case, wisdom for our trials, we must ask first, believing that He exists, second, that He personally cares for us, and third, that He is able to give us the wisdom we're needing to endure and count our trials as joy. We find the basis for believing all three. In Romans 1, 19 through 20, 1 Peter 5, 7, and Ephesians 3, 20. James tells us that the believer who asks God for wisdom, while lacking such assurance of God's existence or his ability to grant that wisdom, is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. I presume that most of you have seen waves at the ocean, or at least on TV. For me, I'm familiar with waves. I grew up near Santa Cruz, and hard to tell now, but was at one time, before many of you were born, a surfer. Surfboarding requires, essentially, two things. A board, mine was 11 foot 10, it's called an elephant gun. I couldn't do all the maneuvering, but I didn't fight for waves either. So you need a board. And the other thing you need is waves. Waves are pretty essential to surfing. And to, in order to be a decent surfer, a, it's important that a surfer learn something about waves. So, in my limited knowledge of waves, I can say that, simply put... What makes a wave suitable for surfing is determined by the contour of the seabed beneath it and the waves or the winds above it. You know what doesn't affect the wave? The wave. The surf has no innate ability or internal mechanism by which to direct itself. Controlled and directed by the will of the wind, every wave, whether it's capsizing an ocean line, liner, gently bobbing a fisherman's float, or carrying a surfer to shore, in and of itself is unstable and chaotic. That's the picture James paints of the person who brings faithless petitions before God. That person, says James, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. James goes on to describe such a person as being double-minded. Such a person's heart is in contradiction to the heart of God, who, as we saw earlier, 
is single-minded in his purpose in his giving us wisdom that we might be sanctified and increased by our trials. We are double-minded when we ask of God but continue to place our trust and our hope elsewhere. 1 Kings 18.21 gives us an example of such double-mindedness in God's people where Elijah says they were having a competition, if you recall, between God and the gods of Baal. And so Elijah says to God's people, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. James certainly doesn't call it sin to ask or look for remedy to our afflictions. When Paul was shipwrecked, he didn't go down with the vessel. He swam for shore. But whether God does or doesn't remove our afflictions, we need to discipline ourselves to be a single-minded people who even in the midst of our most painful and enduring trials are living examples of Proverbs 5, 3 through 8. You're familiar with this text, I believe. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Remember, Elisha's prayer for his servant wasn't for deliverance from the surrounding enemy. It was for his servant to see the greater reality. Likewise, if we only pray for deliverance, if that's all we receive, just rescue from our troubles, we are not strengthened or matured in our spirit. Our rescue may only be superficial not accomplishing much at all. But if we're given the wisdom that enables us to see that the hands of our enemies are in the hands of our God, we are delivered into a greater depth of love for God, a greater commitment to keep His commands, and led into a greater depth of faith and dependence on God. The kind of faith and de- the kind of faith and dependence demonstrated for us by Christ Jesus. In Hebrews two fourteen through eighteen, we're told that Jesus knows well the flesh and blood perspective on these things, but being made like his brothers in every respect. And that in order to be a suitable propitiation for our sins, he was subjected to both temptation 
and suffering no different than ours. Greater than ours. But that in the midst of that suffering, suffering far greater than you or I will ever know, Jesus held to a faith that said deliverance from the suffering was not as important as God's purpose and plan behind the suffering. Do you remember his prayer in the garden? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's what single-minded faith looks like. It looks beyond the moment and sees the master. But we can only know that kind of single-minded faith when we have the wisdom to see God with joy, even in the midst of our tearful trials. I'll begin my concluding words sharing how I was recently blessed and greatly encouraged through a personal witness of this kind of godly wisdom. I've been permitted to share this. A few weeks ago, uh, and by now most of you, I'm sure, or I believe, know about Natasha Borisov's diagnosis of cancer. I see Mike here today. Good to have you with us, Mike. Recently, the elders were able to go over and pray with Mike and Natasha. And after sharing with us a number of practical matters uh, related to Uh, for feeling ill and to the uh, diagnosis that at that time was still pending. Uh, There was a pins and needles feel in the air as they had to wait to know what treatment might be effective. There were also a couple of other issues that were impacting and exacerbating uh, their stress and their troubles. Their trials were exponential. And after sharing all of that, they each relayed to us incredulous words of faith. Each of them relayed to us how after the initial shock had settled down a little bit, how they were able to see God's good purpose in the cancer, in the afflictions that they were enduring, in that they had recognized that they had become less dependent, less trusting, less reliant on God, And that through this, they were remembering their need for him 
and his faithfulness toward them. I was blown away, man. I left there, I'm pretty sure I was about this high above the concrete when I went to my car. I was filled with joy on their behalf that God would give them such wisdom and insight to see through the trial, to see through the cancer into the eyes of the Creator. To know that God is still on the throne. But the reality is they're not alone in the testing of their faith. And if there is a particular drawback to being a pastor. It's that we often have that sort of front row seat into people's despair. It's often difficult to watch. We pray for you and we weep with you, wishing very much that we'd, we could remove the pain from you. We really do. And we gladly join our prayers to yours, asking that God would mercifully remove it. And that's okay. James 5.14 even counsels us to do that. It says, if you're ill, go to the elders. But it may be God's will to withhold such rescue from you. In His wisdom, knowing that the trial is actually what's best for you. So ultimately, our prayer for you is Elisha's prayer for his servant. That God would gift to each of you, to each of us, the wisdom to see his good plan, his sanctifying purpose in your every trial. That he would grant each of us the ability to rest in his complete sufficiency. Blessing us with the faith needed to count as joy what 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 tell us are light and momentary afflictions preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's the single-minded faith that God calls every believer to. We're called to rejoice in adversity when we can and to ask God for wisdom when we can't. That's also the encouragement found in Philippians 4, 6 through 7, where it says, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, before I close in prayer, I want to say something to those here who have not come to faith in Christ. Those here who still reject 
God's free gift of salvation, purchased for them with the blood of Jesus. It's the believer and the believer alike who should count their trials as joy. But I say that knowing that they should do so for very different reasons. The believer can count their trials as joy because as the scriptures taught today, our trials are the gifts of God given for our spiritual wellness and maturity. The trials we know in this life, though they may be painful to bear, are only temporary discomforts that God will ultimately redeem in our eternal glorification at Christ's return. But I say now to the resistant believer or unbeliever, even though there's not any part of this promise given to you, you might as well count this life's trials as joy too. Because apart from Christ, even the very worst of this life's trial is a pleasant delight in comparison to the eternity of hell's torment. And God does promise that to those who die still in their sins. Second Peter 3, 9 through 10 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. 1 Corinthians 1, 21, 24 says this, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So if you're here today, and you're here today still unreconciled with God, the absolute wisest thing you could ever do is to ask God for the wisdom to see your sin and your need for a Savior repenting and placing your trust in Christ. For it is Christ who is the true wisdom of God, and you are wise to place your faith in Him for all eternity. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Heavenly Father, thank You for these words of James, these 
this admonition and encouragement to seek your wisdom, greater faith, that we might count as joy the trials you send for our sanctification. Father, we pray that you would use these words to increase us, to make us more Christ-like, to give us a greater dependence and reliance on you. Father, we are so grateful for this church and the blessings you have poured out upon her. We ask you to continue to do so. In the name of Jesus, amen.